0: I wanna encourage you today to, um, to use your imagination just a little bit. Uh, we have, uh, from time to time, I have uh, alluded to the fact that if we had the opportunity just to sit across from one another and share a cup of coffee, um, there are certain ways and certain things I'd like to talk to you about. So we're gonna try that today. Uh, this chair's for you and that's your cup. Using your imagination? And this one is for me, and I don't drink coffee, but there's something good in there that I like, okay? And um, and we've been studying love for the last several weeks out of 1 Corinthians 13, and so if you've not already turned there, I want to encourage you to do so. The title of this morning's message is How Unfailing Love Transforms the Loveless Cafe. And um, obviously, I'm using a play on words because... This isn't the Loveless Café, and the Loveless Café is actually a pretty cool place um, and, uh, and they serve really great food. But, um, but I'm talking about something else, much more serious, and how much we need the Lord to transform the church in our lives and remove from it all lovelessness. Um, a couple was celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary, 60 years old each. They've been married 40 years, and they're having a lovely evening sitting at the table, enjoying their evening out with one another. And a fairy appears and says, I can grant, you all are such a lovely couple, and, um, and you love each other so much, and you've done so well over the years, I can grant you one wish apiece. And so the wife says, well, thank you. She said, I think I would love, just love, to take a cruise around the world with my darling husband. And she said, done, poof. And there were two tickets on the table for a worldwide cruise. And then she turns to the husband. She says, sir, what what wish can I grant you? And he says, well, he turns to his wife, honey, I'm sorry. He said, this is all well and good, and this is all sweet. But honestly, I wish I was married to a woman that was 30 years younger than me. And the fairy looked at the wife, and the wife looked sadly back at the fairy and the very said, okay, poof, and she made him 90 years old. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about how his love can transform you and me into great lovers. That husband was not particularly a great lover at the moment, but God wants to transform you and me into great lovers, people who know how to love well. And it brings us to the last part of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, where we have been studying for several weeks. And so I want to call your attention to verse 8. And we're going to read down to verse 13, the very end of the chapter. And it says this, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we've seen a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three but the greatest of these is love. Can you imagine being stuck in a truly a loveless cafe? You'd be sitting at the table by yourself. No one would ever sit with you. No one would ever even notice you were there by yourself. In a truly loveless cafe, um, that would not be the place where you would want to go and drink your coffee would it you know when i go around town and i visit mcdonald's there's there are groups of people that gather there and they drink coffee right uh, some of y'all do that i go down to another place and um uh, colby's and there's a group always in there uh drinking coffee uh, there's another restaurant i go and they have a table and there's always somebody sitting there they have a name for that table i don't think i can mention that here but anyway um where they tell stories and they they talk to each other and what would it be like to go to a place like that expecting to interact with people and to have a relationship with people, and, and it never happened. It just, it just never happened. Um, there's a, my wife and I watch different kinds of shows. Uh, she tends to like to watch the Food Channel. I like to eat food, but, but she likes to watch the Food Channel. And there's a show on there, though, that does capture my attention. And it's called Restaurant Impossible. How many of y'all know that show? Yeah. Well, there's this guy. I think he's an ex-military special forces or something. But he's into food and cooking. And he goes to restaurants and, that are really in trouble. They're not making money. Uh, people, it's, it's failing. And um, the decor is awful. And there are all kinds of issues with these restaurants. And, and he goes through. And he has two hours, if they agree to it. Uh, excuse me. He has two days, 48 hours to transform that restaurant into a profitable, marketable place. Wouldn't it be cool if people uh, that existed were experts that could do that with a church? Huh. When a church was in trouble and it had difficulties and problems and, and, and was particularly struggling in this area, like the church at Corinth was, where they were focused on ministry but love was not a part of their ministry, and so Paul was trying to teach them, you can't do ministry without love. And so wouldn't it be cool if an expert came and poof, <laughs> he, he made it what it needed to be. I want to talk to you about a couple of things this morning. Uh, first, I want to talk about the glaring weaknesses of the loveless church. The glaring weaknesses of the loveless church. The church at Corinth, we've already seen this week after week. It was a church that was missing the point. They, they, they loved the Bible. They they were enamored with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they did not love one another. They would cut each other off when it was time for the love feast, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? And they, would, they would get in line, and they would eat all the food before the people in the back got any. Uh, they would take each other to court. Uh, they were dividing off into cliques and saying, well, I'm of this Bible teacher. And somebody would say, I'm of this Bible teacher. And Paul said, you guys are just carnal. You're like babies. He said, you, you need to understand you can't do ministry without love. And you know, we have a lot of churches in America that are struggling in the same way. They're just like the church in Corinth. They love Bible study. They love all the things associated with being Christian. But they lack the thing that he wants most from us in a church, love. And, and the research, I spent some time this week uh, reading several studies about research in the two groups of people, the unchurched and the de-churched. And the, uh, they're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and the duns, <laughs> the people that are no longer in church and they've walked out and they're not attending a church anywhere. They're not necessarily finished with God, but they've walked away from organized religion. I believe that in our culture of lovelessness in North America, that there still remains in every human heart a basic desire, and the research bore this out. Uh, first, God has placed a hunger in people for three things. First, a meaningful community. People want to be a part of a meaningful community. When, uh, when I did the research on that, one of the things that just kind of jumped out at me that was particularly remarkable, that was one of the most common reasons that people said they left church, was that I feel judged, <laughs> condemned, criticized, not accepted as I am and they got tired of that environment. Eighty-seven percent of the American population has that perspective of the church. Isn't that awful? Isn't that terrible? But yet, they're, they're searching for something. Uh, one, one gentleman said this, and I, I wrote down what he said. The Bible and God, this was his experience, were twisted into something ugly and frightening. Most of the time, people just wanted to step on us to grind their Christian truth into us with their heel. I was so disgusted by the hate radiating from Christians, uh, it made me sick. And if that's what being a Christian was, what God was, I wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. And yet the hunger remains in each of us. And Jesus understood that because one of the things we see Christ do over and over again is he meets with people and uh, he shows a kind of radical hospitality to the people that the religious folks would have nothing to do with. We've seen this before, where he ate and drank with the wrong kinds of people from the perspective of the religious people. He, he was radical in the sense that you didn't do that unless you considered them good friends and you were welcoming, welcoming them into your circle of friendships. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. And he was accused of all kinds of things because of that. But because of it, um, they may have been rejected by the church, but they were intoxicated by Jesus Christ. It says all the sinners and tax collectors came to hear him. They all came. You see, you and I have the idea that what we need to do is get people to, make, to get converted, and then they get into our community of faith. We get into uh, Bible study groups and that sort of thing. But in fact, what Jesus shows is just the opposite. He says you share life together, and then they discover faith. That it's in the context of knowing real Christians, people that know Christ and walk with Him and who are the real deal, not just on Sundays, but who all the time they're walking with God, they're praying, they're, they're seeking to serve Him, they're, they're seeking to love others and bless others. When they get in that kind of environment, they are experiencing the same thing that those people 2,000 years ago experienced with Jesus Christ. People are hungry for community. I'll tell you what else they're hungry for. By the way, that's why we have small groups. That's why we have Bible study groups on Sunday morning. We have some that meet during the week. Uh, we have other special groups that meet during the summer. That's why we do that, because we can't do that here. I mean, I could stop everything and say, okay, turn around and let's have a conversation with a neighbor. And we may do that sometime. But, but we typically don't build relationships here. We can, we can try. I do love you and I care for you, but this is not where that happens. It, happens. it happens here, when you and I sit across from one another or when we're sitting together in a Bible study. And, uh, and we experience life together. So there's a second thing people are hungering for when they come to church. An honest conversation about truth. An honest conversation about truth. Here's a common complaint that came up in the research. I don't want to be lectured to. I don't want to be lectured to. Now that doesn't mean they weren't interested in what the Bible says. It means that they, they wanted to have questions that they wanted to be able to pose they wanted to be able to interact so that they could learn and so that they could understand even when they disagreed you know people have to think about things jesus loved people we got them to think these are actual questions jesus asked what do you want remember him saying that where is your faith who who do you think i am what do you think and he asked questions and when he did that he was saying i love you you say well don don't people need to change? And I'm going to tell you, yes, absolutely people need to change. But do they change because they're not thinking? <laughs> or do they change because they are thinking? And Jesus in conversation with people calls people to think and to reflect. And, um, and so people are hungry for a conversation about the truth. Is God real? Can I know him? Uh, can I experience him? Uh, how do you do that? How do you know him? They, they want to interact with you in that way. They're not interested as much in our doctrine and our organization or our songs that we sing. They're interested in those kinds of questions. Here's a second, a, second, um, a third area where, uh, where I believe there's a hunger. People are hungry for a living Christ. People are hungry for a living Christ. They don't want to... Uh, to experience church necessarily. And that's one of the things that happens with people who are done with church. So I just really want to know God. And yet we know because the Bible teaches it that church was his idea, wasn't it? Wasn't it? He never taught that you could become fully what he wanted you to be by yourself. Christians are not like other religious groups can go sit out under a tree and meditate and, um, and that's all I need to do to be a part of that faith. Christians, we grow in the context of being with other Christians. And so um, the fruit of the Spirit, God's indwelling presence in us, is love. I can't do that by myself. Um, long-suffering is one of those in the list. I can't be patient just by myself. I mean, I may have to be patient with God, but, but to really experience long-suffering as a fruit of the Spirit, I've got, I got to have somebody to have to be patient with. I have, I have to have somebody to be kind to. I have to have somebody besides just myself. And we know that. We Christians know that. But, but what individuals are looking for is, I really want to know God. Is he real? Is he there? And can I know him? And so they're, they're hungry for a living Christ, not, not necessarily our orthodoxy or uh, specific doctrines. So if the church is perceived as a loveless cafe outside the church, how can this change? And if that's the church's problem and, and it needs change, Maybe it's my problem too. How can I change? How can I become a loving person instead of a person who's consumed with other things and consequently is loveless? Well, here's the second thing I want to talk about. The transforming power of his unfailing love. The transforming power of his unfailing love. Paul is dealing with the people at Corinth. He says, Corinth, you are a loveless church. He said, you're trying to do ministry without love. And so, what you need to understand is uh, ultimately found in verse 8. He says, here's the answer for your lovelessness. Uh, He's going through an argument. He says, you know, you can have faith, you can prophesy, you can preach, you can give everything you have to the poor, you can give your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, all those things are of no value then he describes what love is but then he comes down to verse 8 and he says here's the reason why you don't want to do ministry without love here's the reason why you don't want to go through life being a loveless person why he said love never fails love never fails some translations say love is unending and there's several connotations to that word in ancient literature this word never fails was used in different ways. And it's saying that love never falls to the ground like a decaying leaf in the fall, falls off a tree and comes down the ground. Love never falls to the ground and decays. Love never loses its strength like a traveler on a long journey who gets tired and worn out. Love doesn't do that. Love never leaves its place. The stars in the heaven may fall. And this is ancient literature. We know the stars don't fall. They're meteorites. They said the stars in the heavens may fall, but love never leaves its place. Love is always fixed right where it is. It never wavers, always stays in the same place. Love never drops out of line. A soldier on a long march may drop out of the column. He's got to rest. He's, gotta, he's tired. He has to be refreshed. Love doesn't drop out of line. Love never fails. So Jesus, as we've done each week, I believe he illustrates for you and me this unfailing Love. And it's important that we stay with this notion. This is out of 1 Corinthians. He's trying to, to say to the people in Corinth, this is why love is so important. It's because love doesn't end. Love doesn't fail. Let's see how Jesus illustrates that. We're going to look at John 21. And uh, what's happening is Jesus died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. And you'll remember that Peter denied jesus do you remember that how many times did jesus was he denied by peter how many times three good job and so he he's denied by by peter and and he finds the guys after he's resurrected he finds them fishing and he tells them to come here and and when they come there's a little fire and uh they had been fishing all night it's a great story they've been fishing all night and they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, put your nets down again. And how many fish did they catch? Anybody know? 153, 153. And that's one of the reasons we know the story wasn't made up. Uh, When people make up stories, they don't put in details like that. This is oral history. And so Jesus, uh, they make note of the fact there's 153 fish and Jesus is right there and he, he cooks breakfast for everybody. But then he has this conversation with Peter. Now Peter, what, what had to be going through his mind? When he said come here, it says Peter put on his coat, jumped out of the boat, and came to the shore. That's another detail that shows it was real history and not made up. Nobody puts on their coat when they jump in the water. And, uh, but he did, and he put on his coat, he jumps in the water, he comes to the shore. Why did he put on his coat? I think he had something to hide. <laughs> I think he really felt something intense, and that's what we're going to see in this exchange. In verse 15, John 21, so when they had eaten breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. And by the way, that was his old name. And um, I haven't really figured out why Jesus did that. Maybe you can give me some ideas later. But Jesus uses his old name. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I want, you to, I want to talk to you about the brokenness of Peter. Because some of you are right there this morning. Jesus healed a broken Peter. And we see in this passage how he did it. And he does it with only the wisdom that God can give. Only the wisdom of God could have healed a man this way. How did he do it? Jesus healed a broken Peter by first not giving up on him. Not giving up on him. You know, you and I give up on each other. But Jesus didn't give up on anybody. Unfailing love. And Jesus didn't give up on him. It says so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he's still talking to him. You know, Peter didn't even believe in himself anymore. Didn't even believe in himself. There's a a play that was written years ago, Man for All Seasons. It was about the life of Thomas More, um, who in the 16th century stood against uh, King Henry VIII and his desire to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and he wouldn't do it, and he stood on his principles, and he did all that he could to avoid the inevitable, but ultimately he was sentenced to die to be burned at the stake. His daughter tried to get him to lose his integrity. Here's what he says in the play. Just listen to this. When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands, like water. And if he opens his fingers, he'd needn't hope to find himself again. And he's saying to his daughter, her name's Megan. In this in the um, in the play, he said, "If you break your promise, daughter, you lose more than your word. You lose yourself." And do you remember what Peter had done? Before, he denied Jesus three times. Do you remember the great declaration that he made? The great statement about loyalty and how he's going to stand with Jesus no matter what? Peter thought he could hold himself. He thought he could manage himself. He thought he could control himself. And he failed miserably, didn't he? And he denies Christ. And it was devastating. He wasn't the man he thought he was. He wasn't even close. And he was devastated. Peter had lost all sense of who he was and what he was on earth for. All of that was gone because he had blown it. All of it was gone. But Jesus didn't lose Peter, did he? He didn't give up on him. And that was the first part of the healing process. He says, Peter, come here. I want to talk to you. Come here. There's a second part of the healing process in Peter's life. He healed a broken Peter by showing him what went wrong. He was showing him what went wrong. He says, do you love me more than these? And there's some debate about what the these is. Um, Some some commentators or theologians would say, when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? He just kind of did his arm over the whole scene. Uh, The fishing business, the boats. uh, I really believe that it's clear that it was about the guys. Do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than 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 these guys? Why? Well, there's there's a there's an issue there. And and Jesus, when he heals you and me, he always shows us what's wrong. What's wrong? What went wrong in our life? Listen to this. Matt, this is not in your notes, and it's not on the screen, but you may want to jot it down. Matthew 26, verses 33 to 35. Listen to this. Jesus had said ahead of time that they would all stumble. Not just Peter, but that all the disciples would stumble. Listen to what Peter says. Even if all are made to stumble, all these guys over here, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. They all said it. They all didn't deny him, but they all said we wouldn't. So what went wrong in his life? Clearly he denied Jesus, did it not once. girl confronts him. You know, he follows Jesus and he follows into the courtyard where he's arrested And there's a fire going. It's interesting that Jesus is doing this next to a fire now, having this conversation with him. But there's a fire going. This girl comes up, says, you were with him. He says, no, I wasn't. I don't know the man. Somebody else said, yeah, yeah, you were with him. He says, no, I wasn't with him. then a third one said, no, 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 you were with him. And he says, no, I wasn't with him. I don't know the man. And depending on which uh, gospel you read, it says that Jesus at that moment turned and looked at him. And Peter ran out, and he wept bitterly. So, So clearly he denied him. But is that the issue of what went wrong? Why did Jesus come to him and said, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? You see, there was a much deeper issue. When he said, even if all deny you, even if everybody uh comes to a place where they turn their back on you i will never do that what's he doing he is he is not exclaiming his devotion to jesus he's saying i'm better than these guys i'm not like everybody else i'm i'm a notch up on these other other guys i i've got to be on top and that you know was always peter's issue I've got to be on top. I've got to be the best. I've got to be ahead of everyone else. I've got to prove myself. I've got to demonstrate that I'm worthy of you, Jesus. I've got to do this. And Jesus has come back to him and says, Do you love me more than these? Do you really love me more than these? What he had loved the most was not Jesus. Jesus. And the restoration process involves Jesus loving you and me until we come to a place where we see what went wrong, and then we can turn from it. That's called repentance. And, and he does. He does turn from it. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, there's a third thing Jesus does when he heals a broken Peter. He's leading him to a simple devotion. He's leading him to a simple devotion. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? And he does it not one time, does he? He says it two times then he says it three times peter do you love me now there's a play on words under the english that you need to know about because he says three times do you love me do you love me do you love me but he doesn't say the same word each time peter does yes i love you but jesus doesn't the first time he says peter do you agape me do you love me with the supreme kind of love that is self-sacrificing that requires nothing in return Is not based on feelings, but it is raw commitment, a choice to do what's best for the other person, regardless of the cost. Do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, I'm fond of you. He didn't say agape. Peter said, I I phileo you. I, I, I I am fond of you. I have attraction for you. I care for you. Jesus did a second time. Do you agape me? Peter says, I'm fond of you. I'm fond of you. I know that and jesus comes back a third time and this time he says peter are you fond of me he changes words the third time he doesn't say agape he uses peter's estimation of love he says are you fond of me peter and peter says yes i am fond of you what was jesus doing he was helping peter to grow he was helping peter to come to a place where he not only saw what had gone wrong but to come to a place of simple devotion to Jesus, to give Jesus and not promise him more than you can give, but just to give him truly all that you are, period. Nothing more. And he's not asking for any more. He's asking to give him who you are in truth. Peter was saying uh, earlier, he said, I love you 100%. I will die for you even if everybody else quits. I'm 100% in. I'm all in. I'm 100%. I am, can do the best. I can love you better than anybody else. And of course, he blew it. So what does Jesus say? He says, do you love me with 100% love? You think you do. Do you love me with 100% love? Peter says, I love you with 60% love. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with 100% love? Peter says, I love you with 60% love. Jesus said, do you love me with 60% love? Peter says, I love you with 60% love. Peter no longer Is thinking he's really that good he says but what I got I can give you what I what I am I can give you I can't give you more than that Lord that's all I got I know I'm not capable of loving you the way that I thought I could love you I really don't have it in me I've seen that now and Jesus said that's enough that's enough just give me what you got give me who you are and that's good enough for me he leads him to a simple devotion To Jesus, you know more than anything else. That is what He wants most from you and me. That we would love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength—everything we got, nothing more than we got, just everything we got—and that we would love Him. That's what He wants most from you and me. The fourth part of the of the um, this journey of healing a broken Peter is this. He healed him by calling him to meet the needs of others. That's number four. Calling him to meet the needs of others. He says. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And so the last step in the healing process is that Peter knows now why he's on earth. He has a a purpose. He has a reason for existing. It's birthed in the context of his intimacy with Christ, but out of that love relationship with Jesus, he knows why he's here. Jesus now can lead him. Jesus, he says, follow me. Now Peter can truly follow him. He, He has restored him He knows why he's here. It involves loving other people. And and he's all about that. And Peter's on his way. Restoration process always leads to mission. Your mission. Your calling. Well, that's what unfailing love does. It heals broken people. Love never fails. Jesus is the illustration of that. How that happens. Unfailing love. So how does he transform a loveless heart into a great lover. How does he transform a loveless church into a loving church? Remember the church at Corinth is the one being addressed. And um, they've had all these issues. I mean, the whole letter, first 12 chapters, Paul's talking about problems that they have. And then he comes and he says, at the end of chapter 12, he says, but let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better way to do this. Y'all are all caught up in these other things. Let me show you a better way. He said, um, and and he goes on, he says, love is the main thing. You can do all these other things. He says in the first three verses, you can have faith, you can move mountains with that faith, you can give your body to be burned and so forth. You can do all of that, but if you don't have love, you're missing the mark. And then in, um, in verses four through seven that we've been studying over the last several weeks, he really paints a portrait of love. It is a picture of Jesus he's the only one that ever loved that way but he's saying this is the way we need to live and and when Jesus lives in you he is going to grow you and you and I to a place where we are loving others that way that's what he wants to do but then he comes back and he's now he's about to tell them why you know when you deal with kids they always ask why don't they do this why go over here why cars coming down the road about to hit him get out of the road son why And the Corinthians had to have that in their mind. Why do we need to do this? Why does love have to be the central thing? Why is love the bottom line in our relationship with God and with others? And he explains it to them. He said, because love never fails. And he goes on in that passage that we read at the beginning. He goes on and explains that it's because love outlasts everything else. Love outlasts everything else. It never ends, never fails, never stops. He said, prophecies Speaking what God brings to mind is a manifestation of the activity and the presence of God in a church where I share my life in God with you, and you share your life in God with me. Uh, when that when that happens, we have some sense of the presence of God. He said that kind of experience is going to go away. Tongues. Whatever you believe about tongues, properly understood, tongues involve speaking words that only God can understand. Um, it's an involvement of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. There are places where tongues are spoken like a Pentecost. Actual languages are understood. It's probably a miracle of hearing, not of speaking. They heard in their own tongue. One guy speaking, everybody hears 12 languages like the UN on Pentecost. I mean, it's amazing. But for the most part, tongues is a capacity to express our weakness. The Spirit intercedes for us with words that cannot be uttered. It says in Romans 8, and so, when tongues occur in a person's life, if they're genuine, if they're authentic, this person uh, doesn't know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit gives them a way of communicating, and they're able to pour their heart out to God. It's an indication of weakness. It's also something that's going to go away, he says. Not going to need that. Not going to need to pray like that. Not going to need to pray at all. That goes away. Wisdom, knowing what God wants to do knowing how to take truth and apply it to a specific situation. He said wisdom's going to go away. Knowledge is going to go away. All these things, are going to go away. Why? Because something better is coming. That's why love matters. There's something really bigger that's coming. He says when that which is perfect has come. What's perfect? Something else is coming. It's called perfect. And The perfect thing is this. There's going to come a time where you and I will have unfiltered, unmediated face time with God. Face to face. Face to face. In 1 Corinthians 13 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. And that word dim, dimly means enigmatically, almost in riddles. I, I get pieces of who God is. I understand parts of who God is. I hear parts of what God is saying. And so now we get, we get a partial encounter with God. He says, but then face to face. Now I, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. I will know just as I also am known. Ultimately, this is your future and my future 50 billion years from now if we know Christ. 50 billion years from now, this is it. Love never fails, it never ends, it never stops. And, um, and that's the thing that we have right now, that we're still gonna have 50 billion years from now. It's our greatest need now. Um, Todd, would you join me up here? McCommon, would you join me up here for just a moment? What does it mean when you are face to face with someone? When you're face-to-face with someone, this is gonna be a little uncomfortable for both of us. All right, Todd, what goes through your mind when someone like me is face-to-face with you? Stuff goes through your mind, doesn't it? Going, <laughs> boy, this dude, I don't know how he ever got his wife. You know, that's what he's thinking. He's saying, boy, how did, how did he get Gail? No, but we we get face to face. And when we get face to face, I not only see the person that I'm I'm seeing there, but he's seeing me. Now, Now, as I see him, and if I'm communicating, talking to him, he's not looking at anybody else. He's looking right at me. And so we're having wide open communication. I don't need to pray to him. He's right there in my face. I don't need to have a word of knowledge or a prophetic word because the guy that's trying to communicate to me is right there in front of me. I don't need those things. Those things are partial and secondary to what's coming. Then the perfect comes, and I'm going to see him face to face. And I'm going to know as I am known. It doesn't say I'm going to know him. It says I'm going to know as I am known. So if he is God, okay, and I am known, he knows everything about me. He knows who I am, what I've done. He knows everything about me. And in that moment, when the God of the universe who knows me, and I'm already known like this, and He looks at me, it changes me. Thank you, Todd. You can sit down. You feel better? All right. I'm also seen at that moment. And imagine this God who made everything, who is love, and that's His perfect attribute. Imagine Him looking at you and now I see how he sees me I know what he knows about me I see the acceptance I see the the sacrifice I see the the love I see that nothing nothing is more valuable than what he's giving me in that moment and it changes everything if I knew I was fully known right now I would never be bored If I knew what that moment's going to be like right now, I'd never be bored. I would never, ever have self-pity. It couldn't exist. I would never be angry. I would never be resentful. I would never sin. I'd never be anxious. I'd never be afraid. I'd never be impatient. None of those things would happen. You say, how is that possible, Don? I want you to imagine if if you have a lady who has $200 to her name. That's all she's got in the world and somebody comes up to her and says, can I borrow your $200? She says, okay. She gives her $200, and now the $200, the person has borrowed it, and she's got nothing, and she's like, rascals. I wonder if they're going to give it back. They're taking something that's really valuable to me. This is the whole, this is all I got. They're taking everything I've got from me, and we can get angry because they're taking something from us. We can get depressed because something I think I need, I don't have. I I can get worried. I can get fearful. I can get anxious. But let's say instead of the woman with only $200 to her name, you now have a woman who has millions of dollars. And someone comes to her and says, can I borrow $200? She says, sure, here's $200. Does she worry about that $200? If that person doesn't pay her back, does she care? She might, She might, she might be tempted, oh, that person hasn't paid me back what they owe me. But then she remembers, oh, but I got millions of dollars. And she's able to let it go. She's able to forgive the debt. She's able, she doesn't have to hang on to anything because she's so wealthy. She's got so much. Nobody can take anything from her. Nobody can ever take anything from her because she has so much. No longer threatened by what other people take from me when I know as I am known. The bottom line is this. Lovelessness is cured through face-to-face meetings with Jesus. Lovelessness is cured through face-to-face meetings with Jesus. If you are struggling to love like the people at Corinth, they were not getting it. What's the, what's the need that you have? What's the need that I have at that moment? Angry, bitter, unforgiving, hateful, keeping a record of wrongs, not being kind. I mean, you, you fill in the blanks. Um, being dishonest, whatever it is. When that is occurring, how does that change? I know at the times in my life where I've been most under pressure for whatever reason. Fearful, anxious, afraid, angry, bitter. Whatever those emotions were that I was feeling. I have found that when I go, and I might wait a day. (laughs) I might wait for days. But I find that when I go before the Lord, And I lay that out before the Lord. It changes me. may not have anything to do with the person or persons that I have a problem with. But it changes me. Because I go to him and I see something of how he sees me. I hear something of his love for me. I hear something of my purpose on earth. I see something of what's coming. Paul says to the people at Corinth, don't waste your life doing a bunch of stuff without love because 50 billion years from now there's only one thing that's still going to be happening, only one thing that still matters. When you stand face to face with him. And you can do that now. If you don't know Christ today, there is a starting point to this journey with God. The Bible tells us that because of sin that you and I are separated from God. He is holy, he is pure. He is different. He is totally separate and apart. He's never been created. He's never aged. He's never changed. He has always existed. I can't make up a God like that. But He wants us to know Him, and so He sent Jesus Christ into this world to show us, tell us, demonstrate for us who God is and what God is like. And the deal with our sin, our offenses, the things that, where we have said, I don't need God, and I just go do what I want to do. The deal with that, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment on himself. And the Bible says that salvation, forgiveness, is simple. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's not keeping 25 rules. It's not jumping through 25 hoops. It's not signing a bunch of contractual papers. It's really simple. He says, whosoever believes in me shall not perish but will have everlasting life. Trust me. Put your trust in me. Christianity is not about a church. It's not about a bunch of doctrine or specific teachings. Christianity ultimately is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And do you know him? And have you put your trust in him? And have you allowed him to come in and sit on the throne of your life? and give you direction and guidance. This morning, we're going to stand and sing. It's, we call it an invitation. It's a way to respond and say, I want to trust Christ. There'll be pastors standing here down front with me, and you can come, and I encourage you to come, and take them by the hand and say, I want to know Christ. I want him to change me. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I want the new life that pastor was talking about. Come, these guys will take time with you. They'll share scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. Would you come? And then brother or sister, if you are struggling with a loveless heart, when's the last time you met with Jesus? Face to face. If you're being hateful or angry or bitter, when's the last time you met with Jesus? Really met with Jesus. I'm not talking about reading a word, checking something off a list, closing the Bible, and going on about your day. I'm talking about when's the last time you met with Christ? Because when you meet with Him, He's going to zero in, just like He did with Peter. He's going to show you what's going on. He's going to help you take your fingers off of that bitterness and that hate and that anger. He's going to take you to a new place, a new mission, a new assignment. Have you met with Jesus? Have you met with him? Would you meet with him now? Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for coming among us. I know in a room like this with so many different life experiences and situations, that there are a thousand different ways that your spirit is speaking today, talking to us about needs we have, needs in the lives of others that we care about, Father, we don't want to be a loveless church. We want to be a church filled with the love of Jesus. A place where people can come and find radical hospitality like Jesus gave. A place where they can come and find people who will talk with them and have an honest conversation with them about truth. A place where they can come and be real and really find a living Christ. Father, we want to be a church like that. it starts with each of us it starts with me it starts with me Father may each of us come to a place where we stand before you like Peter and we say it's all I've got Lord it's all I've got here it is lead us guide us in these moments we welcome you here